Hope you guys had a great weekend. We are going to be Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Hebrews 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick it up. Verse 1. Hebrews 3, picking up in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house, for he was... For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which we are to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I thank you for this morning and the opportunity to open your word and to jump into it. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us, that you teach us. I thank you for this passage, and specifically it's a reminder of the faithfulness of Christ to us, his people. And on a weekend in which we celebrate Valentine's and we think about love, I thank you that it is a demonstration of a love that is unparalleled in our lives, of a God who would create us, of a God who would create everything and who would give his only son's life for us, a demonstration of love unlike any other. And not just a love offered at one point, but a love that is maintained and that is unfailing and that is perfect. And Father, I pray this morning that you allow us to see more fully exactly what it is that the love of Christ is in our lives and the way that it transforms us, the way that it calls us forward, and the way that it really changes our life. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I'll tell you guys, uh, every year as we hit Valentine's weekend, I often feel that Valentine seems to be the most polarizing of all national holidays, right? Uh, some of you guys either love Valentine's or some of you guys could actually kind of just do away with it completely, right? So, uh, show of hands, how many of you guys are like fantastic, avid Valentine's people? All right, raise your hands. Wow, all right. People are like, kind of like embarrassed. The boyfriends are like, oh yeah, 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 that's me, right? Let me get my hand up here. How many of you guys really are not a giant fan of Valentine's? Much more confident showers of hands. And the rest of you guys are just unafraid to, or afraid to actually mention what you are, right? Here's my favorite thing about Valentine's. All right, I kind of ran across this week a series of Valentine's Day cards that are too honest to actually ever be used by anyone. So let me exhibit these for you guys. Here's one of them, all right? There's no one I'd rather lie to about our future together than you, all right? Sure, none of you guys used this card. I hope you didn't, all right? Uh, here's another one for you guys. Propose or we're done. How about that one, all right? For you ladies to your men, all right? Uh, or how about this one? Uh, thank you for your unsolicited donation to Hallmark. Uh, you guys may not realize this, but Valentine's weekend is a $17.3 billion weekend boon, all right? Uh, between roses and cards and the whole shebang, $17.3 billion is spent on Valentine's weekend. Of that, 180 million cards are purchased and distributed. 196 million roses are purchased and distributed, right? Huge financial boon, all right? Uh, and then there's this, my last card, which is frankly, I thought was hilarious, all right? Overpriced Hallmark card, $4. Overpriced roses from a Conroy's, I don't know what that is, $95. Overpriced Tiffany necklace, $270. Getting away with putting zero effort into our relationship for the next 364 days, priceless, right? Now, I don't know how you view Valentine's, all right? There might be some sense for some of you guys as you think about Valentine's that it creates all kinds of stress for you. If you're the dude, you're like, what do I do on Valentine's? What do I get my lady? What do I need to purchase? What is going to make this a special weekend? Some of you guys might have just started dating in January, and you're thinking, oh, I'm a month into this. Well, what do I do with Valentine's? How do I not freak her out? How do I not undersell this thing? Some of you guys are actually waiting till today to actually ask the girl out because you were too afraid to start about a month ago because you're afraid of Valentine's, which 
let's grow up and let's be courageous men, all right? But you, we have all kinds of views of Valentine's, all right? Some of us love to celebrate. My wife is a celebrator. She loves any reason to celebrate. So we did the whole Valentine's weekend thing, and it's really fun. But for some of you guys, it is fun. It is fun, Marcy, right? For some of you guys, though, she's like, really? For some of you guys, though, uh, Valentine's might create a little bit of stress. Uh, for some of you, you may look at Valentine's and go, it's ridiculous to put all of this much emphasis on one weekend when really romance is not about one weekend, right? But it's about a year, right? Uh, you can't just do one weekend right and then do nothing the rest of the year. Uh, we joked around in college that we thought romance was not an event, but it was a lifestyle. I like that line. You're welcome to use that anytime you want, all right? Romance is not meant to be this one moment, this flashy one moment weekend, but it's meant to be a lifelong or a year-long pursuit of someone else in which you show a faithfulness to them. You know, so it's not just romance, but in many ways, I think often as a culture, we love flashy moments and we often undersell faithful longevity moments, right? We love an all-out escapade for Valentine's weekend, but we're not so uh, amazed by or write notes about a lifelong pursuit of a person. And I think it's not just in romance that we often under, uh, undersell faithfulness and oversell flashy moments, but it's also in sports, right? We think about athletes who have this one amazing game or one amazing season, but we often don't think about the athletes who have greatness over a longevity, Think about vehicles or automobiles. Maybe some of you guys are car people. You love the fast, the fancy, uh, the flashy vehicle, and yet we often overlook the vehicle that can go 200,000 miles until you get out of college. You got to pay for everything yourself, and then all of a sudden that's the car you want, right? Uh, It's not just vehicles. It's not just romance, but it's even technology. We love the latest and the greatest, and we're not so concerned with what's going to last anything longer than three years because we're going to upgrade to the next latest and the greatest. We love what's flashy, We often undersell what's faithful, what's about a longevity of consistency of a pursuit and a dependability. What Hebrews 3 this morning is going to be is a passage that's going to exalt and raise up the value of faithfulness. It's going to diminish the value of flashiness. It's all about faithfulness. And so as we jump into Hebrews 3, really, if you want to consider this almost a valentine, this is really, in a sense, a valentine about Christ's faithful love for you and I. Not just in a moment, but over the longevity of a relationship with his body, the church, and with his people, humanity. That's what Hebrews 3 is going to be all about this morning. And as we jump into Hebrews 3, I'll tell you guys, we've seen uh, the writer of Hebrews comparing Jesus to a series of characters along the way. We saw at the very beginning, the very, very first week of the semester, we looked at Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, and we saw, God, or we saw the writer of Hebrews comparing Jesus to the prophets of the Old Testament. The last couple of weeks, we looked at the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we saw God compare, or the writer of Hebrews comparing Jesus to the angels. And so now in chapter 3, we're going to see the writer of Hebrews switching gears and comparing Jesus to someone new. And specifically, it's going to be the person of Moses. And as he does it, you're going to see, in a sense, the definitional standard of faithfulness established, that Jesus is going to show and demonstrate a faithfulness that is unlike any other's faithfulness, Moses or anyone else. In fact, pick it up in verse 1 again. Notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. The writer of Hebrews is going to make a comparison here in chapter 3 between Jesus and and the person of Moses. And as the writer of Hebrews does that for an audience, uh, and this specific audience that had an incredible Old Testament background, he started with the prophets, he moved to the angels, and now he's in Moses. And as he compares Jesus to Moses, he's comparing, in a sense, Jesus to the most untouchable religious man that this audience could have had. That as they think back to their heritage as a Jewish audience, they think back to Moses, who they saw as the founder and the father of Judaism. No one could touch Moses. 
And for the writer of Hebrews to try to stack Jesus up alongside of Moses was a tall, tall order for this audience. It might be like you're taking your favorite athlete and trying to get into a competition with him. Imagine if you were thrown into a competition with Steph Curry in the three-point contest, right? You'd be totally intimidated. There's no way you're taking down Steph Curry, all right? Maybe cooking's your thing. Maybe you have a chef that you love uh, and you're all over their Pinterest board or their recipe deal and you're like, I got to cook for this person. You'd be totally intimidated. Maybe it's a comedian that you love, all right? You would do anything just to have a dinner with them, but then you imagine trying to make a joke and making that comedian laugh and it is an incredibly tall order. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing in a religious arena here with Jesus and Moses. As he stacks Jesus up alongside of Moses, he's stacking Jesus up alongside the most revered and respected religious man that this audience would have had in mind. It was an incredibly tall order. But notice exactly how he compares Jesus and Moses in verse 3. Notice what he says. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He says, look, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus has more glory than Moses. The question is why? Why is Jesus better than Moses? By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, check this. Here's where the comparison really dials down into and digs into. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for testimony of those things which would be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Why does Jesus have more glory than Moses? Because Jesus has a faithfulness that is better than Moses' faithfulness. How is Jesus' faithfulness better than the faithfulness of Moses? Well, two reasons. One, Moses was faithful as a servant while Jesus is faithful as a son. We talked about this the last couple of weeks, that for Jesus to be the son meant that he shared the same nature with God, that he was deity. But even as son, he shared the same nature with humanity. So as son, he was superior to Moses, who was a servant. But it's not just about titles, but it's also about the fact that Moses was a servant in the house, while Jesus was faithful as a son over the house. Specifically, what is the house? Notice what he says in verse 6. Christ was faithful to his son over his house, whose house we are. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is better than Moses because he's more faithful than Moses. Why is he more faithful than Moses? Because he is a son compared to Moses who was a servant, a servant that was actually in the house, but Jesus is a son over the house. That Jesus, compared to Moses, stands way over Moses' shoulders. Moses doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. The most respected religious man that this audience had, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus blows him away. Jesus blows away the angels that you looked at the last two weeks, and he blows away Moses as well. And he blows Moses away specifically in his track record of faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? How do we define faithfulness? Here's a great definition of it for you guys. Webster's defines it this way. Faithfulness is steadfast in affection or allegiance, firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty. That to be faithful means that you are steadfast, that you are constant in your allegiance and your affection for someone else. But it's not just an attitude of the heart or an an element of submission of the the will, but it's also about clinging to and sticking with someone's promises or an observing duty to that person. That to be faithful is not just about dependability, but it's about an an attitude and a disposition of the heart. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it's not just that Jesus embodies this in a way that no one else can embody it, but he embodies this attitude specifically to us, his people. To us, his people. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, not here that that Jesus was necessarily uh, morally perfect uh, without flaw, but what the writer of Hebrews is really driving home to this audience is that the person of Jesus Christ demonstrated a faithfulness to 
this audience in a way that no one else ever had, not even Moses. Why is that significant? Why is the writer of Hebrews here trying to establish the superiority of, of Jesus in his faithfulness and his dependability? Specifically, it's because these people were undergoing incredible difficulty and challenges. We talked about this the very second week of the semester when we looked at the, this book and understood what exactly was going on in this book. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who, in a sense, are under all kinds of attack, persecution, and difficulty. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to them in that moment is that don't think that your circumstances lead to the idea that Jesus has abandoned you. Just because it's difficult right now, just because you're being attacked for your faith and your relationship to Jesus, don't think that Jesus has abandoned you because he hasn't at all. Because he's faithful to you. Why does that matter to us? Why does that matter at all? I'll tell you guys, I often think about couples who get married. I often have an opportunity to officiate weddings. It's one of the favorite parts of doing college ministry. Love it. And every year I always laugh at post-wedding as the couple's off at their honeymoon. There's always a series of classic uh, photos that get posted on social media at some point in time. But one of them is always the the two hands clasped kind of like this with the rings being displayed with like a beach in the background, right? It's always like this incredible flashy, horrific, or horrific, uh, awesome... I don't know where that came from. Uh, this awesome moment, right? Where like they're, all their dreams are fulfilled. All that they've been looking forward to is right here in this moment. They're wedded together. They're on a beach. They're relaxing. All of the planning of a, of a wedding is behind them. And they're just living it to the hilt right now. And so that moment, those rings are a picture initially of dreams fulfilled and flashy dreams fulfilled. It's a moment and a picture of flashiness, frankly, that makes all of us jealous because we're all in normal life wondering why can't we be on a beach like they are, right? And we're all jealous, But that picture of those rings about 10 years later has a very, very different picture, doesn't it? 10 years later, as you're looking at this, you have students wondering about marriage and all you're looking forward to. 10 years later, that wedding ring pictures something different. Not necessarily a flashiness in a moment, but a promise of faithfulness over time. Because in the moment of honeymoon, when life is good and easy, it's all fun. But what about 10 years later when difficulty, sickness, difficulty, and tragedy and trials have struck? Then what is the picture? Then what is posted on Instagram? We don't like to post that kind of raw reality at times. But in marriage, that wedding ring becomes a symbol and a token, not of a flashy moment initially when everything was right, but it becomes a sign and a token of a promise given between two people to be with each other and to be faithful to each other no matter what comes. And what Hebrews 3 is to an audience that is encountering difficulty is not the wedding rings with the beach in the background, but it's the wedding ring in the midst of difficulty that reminds them that Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. That Jesus is still faithful to them. That Jesus is still true to them despite the difficulty that they're undergoing. And for you guys this morning, I kind of want to ask you just a simple question. As you think about your life, there are often snapshots of our lives. Sometimes the snapshots and the instance that we find ourselves in are great. They're like that beach moment, right? Where life is just right. And then there's other snapshots. There's other moments in time when the snapshot is difficulty and trial. And for some of you guys, you may be in one of those moments right now where life, it does not look anything like you imagined it was going to look at all. I don't know what that issue is. I don't know what those circumstances are. Sometimes they can feel pretty superficial, but they (laughs) blow our worlds away. And sometimes they're not superficial at all. They're huge moments in a family life, uh, in a personal relationship, and it wrecks us, and it just is a weight that crushes us. And in those moments, the question that we often ask is, Lord, where are you? Where are you? 
Because this picture, these circumstances don't fit with my understanding of your presence because if you were present, it would feel like I shouldn't be in this moment. That's where the, right, that's where the audience of Hebrews is right now. Their possessions have been taken away. They're losing their jobs. Some of them are suffering bloodshed. Their lives are under jeopardy and, and, and to take of being taken away and suffering a martyr's death. And in that snapshot, the, writer, the audience of Hebrews has a tendency to go, Lord, where are you? And what the writer of Hebrews wants to do here for this audience and for you and I as we find ourselves in those snapshot moments that are hard is to say Christ is right where he always promised he would be. Present in our sufferings, identifying with us in it, and working to transform us through it. That he's gone nowhere because he's faithful. And he's faithful unlike anything else we see in our lives, where families break down, where relationships suffer, that there's a faithfulness and a consistency of a pursuit of Jesus Christ in our lives that will never live up to whatever marriage you're going to step into that has yet already not lived up to whatever family experiences you have had. The writer of Hebrews says what Jesus is for us and what he does for us is unlike any other relationship we've ever been a part of or will ever know. That he's faithful. That he's consistent. That he does not abandon us. He does not forsake us. He loves us through and through. That's the beauty to me of the gospel. That God would give his only son, Jesus Christ, life for the sake of you and I and that he would offer to us something that we can never purchase and earn the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that as he would move towards us in the midst of our hostility and sin and the death of his son, he would offer to us something that we could never purchase, and that was eternal life. And he would offer it to us freely, absolutely freely, without condition, without cost. It cost his son greatly, but it costs us nothing. And that to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is an absolutely free gift. That all you and I have to do is say, yes, I trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I want a relationship with you. And the beauty is not just how we enter into that relationship, but the beauty is even more in how that relationship is maintained. That we don't just enter into it freely, but it is maintained unconditionally. Just as you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ absolutely unconditionally, so you remain in it unconditionally. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to say here next. That in many ways, the faithfulness of Jesus is a demonstration of something to us that is a definitional standard. And Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8 when he says this, If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That when we're in that moment of tragedy and difficulty, it's like us to say, Lord, where are you? And to wonder why you aren't giving us what we're looking for or what we feel like we need. And what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is, he's not against us at all. We may feel like others are against us, but he's not left us. He's not abandoned us. He is for us. And nothing changes that because he gave us his own son absolutely freely. And if he'd give us his own son freely, then there's nothing else that he would fail to give us if he desired. That's the beauty of the gospel, that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ absolutely freely, and it is maintained absolutely freely. And so really, the, the, the chapter here, in chapter 3 of Hebrews, will turn here in verse 6, right in the middle of verse 6, because we're going to see an unprecedented demonstration of the faithfulness of Christ that is absolutely guaranteed, but what is not going to be guaranteed is necessarily our response. Notice verse 6 again. Notice where this passage turns. Verse 6, But Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm until the end. Do you notice the, the preposition, though? Whose house we are, if, 
if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The reality is the, the faithfulness of Jesus is guaranteed and unconditional. It's absolutely a slam dunk reality. What is not a slam dunk reality in the midst of tragedy and difficulty is our response to him and whether we will choose and remain faithful to him. So what the writer of Hebrews will do here in chapter three is he's going to unfold an example that they would have recognized in which the people of God choose to not be faithful to God. You're going to see how that unfolds. You're going to see consequences from it. But in a sense, the, the nation of Israel is going to have a moment in their time in, the, in history in which they're going to be at the brink of death, all right? I was thinking about my own life. There was my first summer ever that I got to go overseas. I went to a Central Asian Muslim country. It was an amazing experience. I learned a ton about God and about who he is and what he's doing in the world, but it was also an incredibly trying time. I went through some difficulties specifically. I remember one point, one night, with some roommates so that we were all there together. And a buddy and I got absolutely sick out of our minds, all right? And so we were passing one another through the night, heading to the restroom, all right? I emptied out every ounce of liquid I ever had in me. And at some point, about two in the morning, all right, I passed out. I just passed out on the floor and I was out cold, all right? In the moments right before that, though, I really began remembering a certain thought stream that was going through my mind. It was this, is this like the end for me? <laughs> like, 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 it's been a great ride, and, like, this may be it for me. Like, this could be all she wrote. I really, really actually was thinking, am I about to die? Like, I was just so mentally and physically wasted and exhausted, and I had no idea what was going to be on the other side of that dark black thing that was coming into my mind, all right? And I actually also remember having this thought, will I get, like, one of those cool, like, missionary biographies? You know, like, <laughs> like, like Jim Elliott gets, like, this, like, great, like, African tribe, kill him. Like, he's famous, you know. Like, my story may not play out as well because I got sick by a toxic kebab, right? Probably doesn't play out as well for missionary biography. But nonetheless, I was just thinking, like, what am I going to do in this moment, all right? I was thinking about what's happening to me, where is God, and what's, what am I going to do moving forward, all right? I, clearly, I made it out of there alive, all right? Here I am, all right? Praise be to God, all right? But it's going to be that kind of moment as death seems like it's coming in on the nation of Israel that they're going to have a choice as to whether they're going to be faithful to God or not. And the writer of Hebrews is going to refer to this moment in Israel's history in verse 7. Notice what happens in the text. Notice the passage here. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. What you're going to see happening here is not just the definitional standard of faithfulness, which is Christ, but you're going to see here next the diseased symptoms of unfaithfulness. You're going to see faithfulness when it looks right in the first half of the section when Jesus Christ is a sinner exhibit. And then what you can see in the second half of this chapter is when faithfulness goes awry and when it comes undone. And you're going to see an example of it, and you're going to see exactly how it's going to be undone. And since the next verses are going to be like an autopsy of how faithfulness goes awry. And it's going to begin here in this example, really, with the first step that happens often in faithfulness when it goes awry, and that's a heart that is hardened. Again, for the nation of Israel this time, they're encountering difficulty. Uh, and in that difficulty, they begin to grumble and they begin to complain about God and what God was doing in their lives. And in that moment, they hardened their hearts. Their hearts became hard and resistant to what God was doing and to who God was and whether God was for them or against them, and their heart became hardened. And in that place, the text says in verse 9, your fathers tried me and they tested me. If you know some of the background of the Old Testament, I love some of the references in the book of Exodus and some of the section in which in Exodus 17, the nation of Israel is grumbling against God. And the irony is that they're grumbling against God after he left them and got them out of slavery and the nation of Egypt. And as they've come out of slavery, they're wandering in the desert, they're grumbling. But in Exodus 16, the chapter right before they're grumbling, God provides manna that comes from the skies, lands on the ground. They're eating by the complete obvious provision of God. 
And a chapter later, <laughs> they're grumbling, thinking that God has brought them out to kill them in the desert and that their life is going to be over. And so they're grumbling just a chapter after God's incredible provision in their lives. For you and I, as we make a move sometimes from faithfulness to unfaithfulness, one of the first steps in the midst of tragedy and difficulty is that our heart becomes hardened. What do we do in that place? I think what we do in that place when we begin to find ourselves complaining about our circumstances, complaining about the difficulties that are in our life, is that we begin to practice the art and the skill of gratitude. If only the people in the nation of Israel in Exodus 17 could have stopped and said, based on what happened just a chapter earlier, God is for us. He brought food down from heaven and it landed on the ground and we just literally picked it up and we ate it. Thank you for this manna. But instead of practicing gratitude, what do they do? In 17, they begin to complain. And as they complain, their heart becomes hardened and it begins to move away in its affection and its allegiance to God. What's really interesting to me, though, in Hebrews 3 is that that skill, the art of gratitude, remembering the goodness of God, partly why we worship, partly why we sing, but it's also a team sport. Notice in verses 12 and 13, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is the skill of gratitude an individual one? Yes or no? It's kind of both and, right? That we have to practice gratitude but the community comes around us so that we can practice gratitude together. Why well, he says, Don't be, uh, take care that there's not any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. That it is the community's responsibility that gratitude is a team sport. That we help one another in the midst of tragedies and difficulties. We pick each other up when life is hard. When the circumstances seem stacked against us, we come alongside of one another and help remind one another about all that is good and what God has done in our life. Second step, though, what ends up happening is not just a heart that is hardened, but the second thing that happens is that authority becomes questioned. Verse 9, where your fathers tried me by testing me and they saw my works for 40 years. Some of you who know the Old Testament a little bit and some of the uh, nation of Israel's dealings, when they were grumbling against God and against Moses, what did they want to do? They actually at one point voted to try to impeach Moses as their leader, which is kind of ironic that now he becomes the great religious man that they think of, right? They wanted to vote him off the island, so to speak, at one point. Uh, at another point, uh, Moses communicates that he actually thinks that they're about to stone him. He knows his own life is in jeopardy. And then later on in the story, we know that the issue for the nation of Israel was not just their rebellion against Moses, but Moses was just a picture, really, of their rebellion against the higher authority, which was God himself. So they make a molten calf and they rebel against God. That when we're in those snapshots of difficulty and trial, our heart becomes hardened. And then we begin to throw off the very authority of God. What ends up happening next? Verse 10, notice what happens next. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. God's anger is kindled. And in verse 11, consequences come. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The third thing that happens here is we move from faithfulness to unfaithfulness as a people. First, our heart becomes hardened. Then we question authority that's above us. And then lastly, as we push off and away from God, then consequences come if we know this God. Consequences come in two forms here. First, that God becomes angry with the nation. And second of all, that he swears to them that they will not enter his rest. Well, what does rest mean here? How is this going to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel? Two ways. One, uh, he's going to be frustrated. He's going to express that to them. But then second of all, that generation that disobeyed God, that didn't believe in his promises, that was unfaithful to him, 
they're going to die in the wilderness and they will miss out on seeing the fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel. It will be the next generation that sees that. And so Moses and his generation, they die in the wilderness. Joshua is raised up after Moses, who takes Moses' huge shoes and tries to fill them and ends up leading the nation into the promised land in a way that God never allowed Moses to do. Because you see, when we move from faithfulness to unfaithfulness, our hearts become hardened. We question the authority of God in our lives, whether he's good, whether he should even be in charge of our lives. We push him off. We move in other directions. And because of that, consequences come. Let me try to illustrate consequences, though. Some of you guys know we have two kids right now. Our little girl, Caroline's almost six, or five, about five and a half, and our boy, Cole, is about three. And now that we have two kids, uh, in many ways, parenting is more like refereeing. <laughs> uh, we really are often saying, please don't bite your brother, and please don't kick your sister in the head, and please don't assault them one after the other, right? I mean, we're, like, all kinds of stuff. It's just like, please share. Please just share the toy. Please, you know, like, and that's all, it feels like sometimes that's all we're doing, right, as we're hanging out with them and trying to help them get along, all right? But in those moments when we are frustrated with their inability to obey and love one another, do we express frustration? Yes, right? Do we express consequences? Yes, sometimes we'll take the toy away, right? But do I ever say to my child, Colt, I know you're not three. Love you, son. Pack your bag. Grab some underwear. I know you don't know how to feed yourself, but there is the door. Bye-bye, right? (laughs) That's ridiculous, right? That is absolutely ridiculous, right? Did he have a choice being my son? No. It was an unconditional choice that he had, an experience that he had that he was brought into our family. And as he disobeys, as he uh, faces my wrath at times, God bless him, as he does that, what are the consequences that he'll face? Banishment from the family? That's ridiculous, right? You are no longer my son. (laughs) Godspeed, you little three-year-old. You're not yet a three-year-old, right? Good luck out there. I know it's tough, but the world will be harsh, but good luck with it all, right? That's just ridiculous, all right? What God does to the nation of Israel is the same thing that a good parent does here. He doesn't call, call into question the very existence and the nature of the relationship. What he calls into question is the privileges and the blessings that they'll get to actually participate in. And we're going to see this thread as we walk through the rest of the book of Hebrews as well. So it won't be the first time that we surface this, that really for the nation of Israel and for the people of God, if we know Jesus Christ, if we've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we entered into that relationship absolutely freely And as we rebel, we will face consequences. We will face discipline from God. But that discipline and those consequences are never about a removal of the relationship, period. Because that relationship is absolutely unconditional. The consequences that come, though, are that we will miss out on seeing the fulfillment of God sometimes in our lifetime. Or that we'll miss out having a front row seat and being a participant in what God is doing. Will God still fulfill his promises? Yes. Will God still fulfill his purposes? Yes. But will we have an opportunity to see it and be a participant in it if we disobey and if we're unfaithful? Sometimes, no. And that really is the carrot, or that is the stick, so to speak, here at the end of the passage to say, look, the faithfulness of Jesus is such that he never will forsake us. Never. Even in our worst moments. Even in our worst moments, because he loves us unconditionally. But in those moments, he's calling us to be participants of what he's doing, and he wants us to be a part of, it, part of what he's trying to accomplish. And so he says, call, he calls us to come forward and to remain faithful. 
Uh, if there's a story that caught my attention more in the last two weeks, it was a story of Brian Williams, the news anchor for NBC. Some of you guys might have been following along with uh, that story. Uh, that dude arose the, note, uh, the ranks of pop culture uh, as someone else took a lot of his news clips, uh, spliced and diced them so that he became a YouTube rapper to a lot of certain songs, all right? Absolutely hilarious. And then he came on late night shows and was interviewed over and over again and kept rising in the ranks of pop culture. Everyone thought he was awesome. And then all of a sudden, the last few weeks, all of a sudden, a story began to break out in which he apparently reported falsely a story that he had actually reported on in the past. And specifically, he began to talk about a, a, a helicopter ride that he was in back in 2003 in Iraq and coming under fire of gunshot. And at best, what happened is that he, had, he actually was in a helicopter ride at one point and had reported about another helicopter ride having gunshot and that have conflated those stories in such a way that he spoke as if he was a part of that ride, which he wasn't, or at worst, he was exaggerating a story to make it more dramatic and to get people's attention. But either way, in his unfaithfulness to his craft as a journalist, in his unfaithfulness to the truth, and in his unfaithfulness to the public, the consequences have been huge. Six months removal from NBC as a news anchor. See, even in pop culture today, politics, athletics, even news, even churches, we do love a flashy moment. We love the people that have all the gifts in the world, the people who can awe us and grab us. But even our own pop culture more and more is elevating the value of faithfulness over time. And our heartbeat and our hope for you guys, you students, as you walk with Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why we have you here at tables with these adults is that we want you to see what it looks like, not just to walk with God in college, but we want you guys to walk with the Lord for a lifetime. We want faithfulness to be the characteristic that defines your life, not just in this one phase of life when there's a bunch of people around you who all know Jesus Christ, but as you step into a workplace where people don't know Christ, and as you step into a community in another city one day that people don't know Christ, and you're not anymore in a bubble like this. Our heartbeat and our hope is that you are growing right now, developing patterns in your life so that you will walk with God for a lifetime, that faithfulness will be the banner that describes your life. Our culture is valuing it more and more and more. And frankly, your faithfulness, your integrity, and your character will always be the determining factor of how far you go and what kind of impact you have. Don't buy into the lie that your skills and your gifts and your personality will determine those things because those things will only take you as far as your character will go. Faithfulness, integrity, character is what's going to define who you are and how God will use you. Not flashiness, not gifts in a moment, not personality, not woo and attraction, but faithfulness. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you for the model of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to us in his promises. That no matter what, that you remain faithful to us. That your promises are unconditional. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, as Paul will say in the book of Romans. That you've not abandoned Israel, you've not abandoned us in the midst of even hard snapshot moments. And Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to see what that faithfulness does in our life, Lord, that there is safety in a relationship with you. That even when we are unfaithful, that you are faithful. That even as we uh, stray and as we abandon you, that you stick with us and you continue to pursue us in your love and in your calling and in your care. And Father, I pray that in the midst of, for some of us, moments that are incredibly difficult right now, Lord, I pray that you allow us to see your goodness even in them moments in which we're experiencing things that we never thought would be possible. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to still see your hand and to trust your character and to trust that you have a purpose and a plan that yet we don't see 
as it unfolds. Father, I pray that you allow us to be men and women that are faithful to you, that will walk with you for a lifetime, and that will be a part of a community that will call us forward, that will encourage us one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, as we wait on the return and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, the rest of the morning is y'all. Hope you guys have a great discussion time. And just a reminder, if this is your first time, fill out one of those howdy cards for us and give it to your table host. Love you guys.